0: Pastor Xavier Reese and the timely gift of God. The day was known through the prophets. Isaiah 7:14
1: says, "Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign: Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel." Matthew confirms this as the birth of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel means God with us. Paul the apostle told the Galatians, Galatians 4:4, "When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, made of a woman, under the law." Right on time.
0: Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. For nearly every kid in America, the day can't come soon enough. Then why is it for many adult children the reason for the season, the birth of the Christ child, can't be distanced far enough? In a special message titled The Greatest Day, Pastor Xavier reveals the simple truths of Christmas is in fact all about the greatest gift. God, born as a child, whose life on earth was but to die as our Savior. Let's listen. Our American history
1: gives testimony to the belief and celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's a great celebration. Even in the midst of the commercialism of Santa Claus and everything, it never eclipsed Christ. It stands out. Only in our modern recent history of our nation have we changed our attitude towards the Christ child. And become actively and deliberately hostile toward God and the things of God. For 234 years, our nation has pledged trust in God. Our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers. Every monument in Washington, D.C. has a scripture plastered on it. The Liberty Bell, Year of Jubilee, and many, many others. And last of all, our money every dollar bill, every coin. In God we trust. But from the past 45, 46 years, let's just take a mark of 1965. It began in 1900, the progressive movement to remove everything. But it certainly was a watershed in the 60s. 62, prayer was eliminated. But 65, let's put that there. Those of you who were teenagers as I was, in 65, I was 15 years old. You remember, the 60s were crazy. The 70s were crazier. And these last 46 years, we progressively and purposely have gone out of our way as a nation to remove the evidence of the Christ child or anything to do with Christianity in every way. Christmas and Easter vacation are called winter and spring break. Political correctness of our day is happy holidays, not Merry Christmas. I hope you defy that. I hope when you go shopping, you say Merry Christmas. When they say Happy Holiday, no, it's Christmas. What holiday is it? Ask them. But please make no mistake. Those in authority in America are not against religion. They're against Christianity. The ACLU would never bring a charge or a case against Muslims, Buddhists. Wouldn't dare to do anything like that. But Christianity, that's the target. But it's Okay. God told us about that before it happened. So wouldn't be surprised, right? And God's still on the throne and he's not biting his nails. His message is very clear, very distinct by his faithful servants. It will never be silenced. Ever. What I want to do is look at three important truths about the day Jesus Christ was born. First, the day was prepared for the salvation of man. Very clearly. Secondly, we'll look at the day that was prepared for the fulfillment of prophecy. That's the backbone of the Bible. And thirdly, the day was prepared for reminding man of his need of salvation since his birth. Let's begin here with the day that it was prepared for salvation of man. Now, man was created after the image of God, as you know, but. He fell from that image in Genesis. We are told that. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 16, Adam and Eve were told that they could eat of the tree of the garden and everything except what was in the midst of the garden. They were restricted from one tree, knowledge of good and evil in verse 17. Just one. Isn't that the bent of man? You can have everything except for one thing. And you would say, what thing? And you will sacrifice all you have for that one thing. It shows the bent that we have towards rebellion of authority and self-centeredness. The serpent enticed the woman in chapter three, verse one through five, as you know, challenging God's authority and His goodness. Has God said, "The day you eat, you surely die"? Has God said, ah, "You have to pay attention to that"? So the woman ate; she gave to her husband Genesis three six, and they fell. Sin entered in. Now man's attempt to hide his sin from God is recorded for us also in chapter 3, verse 7. It says that both of their eyes were open, recognizing their nakedness. They covered themselves with fig leaves. What God told them would happen, happened. And um, rather than going to seek God, they turned away from God, to hide from God. Verse 8 tells us. They hit themselves. They heard his voice in the garden. God said, Where are you, Adam? In verse 9 of chapter 3. Now, God knew where he was. And God's all knowing. But God wanted Adam to reflect, Where are you now in relationship to me? What I warned you about. Things are different now. And all of us know, and we've experienced as human beings, lines that have told us, Don't do this because this will happen. And we, ah! And then once we crossed that line and it became experientially mine by experience and by emotion. What I thought I could handle intellectually, all of a sudden when I crossed that line and made it mine, personally and emotionally, it was nothing I expected. I was wrong. Adam justified himself rather than confessing. He didn't acknowledge his guilt. That's the problem with sinful man. We'll always accuse, excuse, and justify. God was seeking confession. He asked him, did you eat of the tree of good and evil? He was looking for yes. But instead, he blamed his wife in verse 11 of chapter 3. It's the woman you gave me. But in reality, he was blaming God because God gave the woman to him. So it must be your fault, God, ultimately. You see? You see? We are so clever. We don't want to acknowledge our own imperfections, our own sinfulness. And so we're always looking at a way we can pass the buck to someone, anyone. And our society has catered to that. The, the latest term is dysfunctionalism. So it's not your fault. It's because your parents didn't give you the little 10-speed you needed when you were 10 years old. Or because they were faithful parents and taught you right and wrong and so now you can't handle all that guilt but that guilt was really for protection you see when you cross those lines so god confronted them the woman confessed the serpent beguiled me deceived me i did eat adam tried to justify himself as a woman you gave me Now both of them had inherited sin nature. The woman's desire in chapter 3, verse 16 said that it would be for her husband. He says, your desire shall be for your husband. Now, uh, many believe that that speaks about now her sexual desire would be torture her husband only. But it can't be. Because this is the curse. If at any time her sexual desire would be torture her husband perfectly in the way it's to be, it would be before the fall. And this is a curse. Three times this phrase is, appears in the Old Testament. Here's the first time. The second one is the next chapter, where God deals with Cain. In chapter 3, of verse 16, About uh, it says, now the, the man will want to rule over you. So here you have the battle of the sexes. When, when God's dealing with Cain, he says, if you confess, otherwise sin wants to master you. Same phrase as desire. So the context will dictate what it is. In Song of Solomon, it speaks about the woman and the man's sexual desire for each other in the context of the honeymoon night. Nothing wrong with that. So the context dictates. Here it's talking about the battle of the sexes. All of a sudden now in the fallen state, her desire is going to be to usurp authority over the man. And his desire as a fallen man is to control the woman. The battle of the sexes because sin nature enters in. You, you quickly find out when you brought your baby home. And as soon as he starts crawling around or has any ability to respond, you tell him, don't touch that. They go. <laughs> they don't say, okay, mom. You know why they don't say that? Because they're your kids. They're just like you, sinners. That's our bent. We're rebellious. The battle of the sexes, each one would be self-centered. Each one would be thinking of themselves more highly than the other. Each would be more inclined to live not as head, not as help me as God designed, but as equals in competition, not completion. That's what's the nature of this. The temporary solution God gave in Genesis 3.21 was the sacrifice of an innocent animal. Clothe them. Fig leaves didn't do Clothe them with skin, cover their nakedness. And the blood was a token for the atonement, the covering. That's what the word is. For all the sacrifice in the Old Testament were of blood, as IOUs of the true payment that come, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, John 1 God's promise. The consequence of Adam and Eve's sin was that they were cast out of the garden. And it gives two reasons, in Genesis three, twenty-two through twenty-four. And twenty-two to keep man from eating from the tree of life. In a fallen state and live eternally. In that fallen state. And in 23 and 24 to guard the way of the tree of life. Until Jesus Christ came. And we would be able to partake of the tree of life at the cross. Eternal life. At first it would seem that God is cruel here to kick them out. But he's the most compassionate because he kicks them out so they don't partake and eat eternally in a fallen state. He's protecting them. You see? Faith for the wounds of a friend. Deceit for the kisses of the enemy. People and parents that confront you, your sin, your lifestyle, and warn you, it's because they love you. Those that don't just pat you on the back, they could care less about you. But what we're so caught up in our own lifestyle, our own self, that we go along with the crowd rather than the correction once again revealing our hearts. Since 1962, when we began to exclude God, the Bible, and the Christian ethics and morality, our nation has been plummeting at a very consistent rate and speeding up. If you look from 62 on, ACT tests, morality, crime, murder, suicide, STDs, it's gone from 300 to 1500% if not more. Any section of history that you look at the United States and you compare it, it's there, it's clear. We can't deny it. Now, all the attempts of man to deny that he has created in the image of God doesn't remove the fact that He is. God has given us a conscience. The minute we're born, we have a conscience. When you began to grow up, you knew right and wrong. When your parents told you something, that you know, you knew it was wrong. But then you callous your conscience, you, you go against that, so it begins to be seared. Callous. If you've ever had a, a scar on your arm or a bad burn, you know that along that scar, you lose sensitivity. You don't feel sense. You can't feel well, that's what happens to our conscience when we go against it. So, conscience, we're without excuse. Creation, somebody created this thing, we're without excuse. History, we're without excuse. But conscience, creation, and history cannot save you. It only bears witness that there is a creator. There's a God. It's the special revelation of the gospel through Jesus Christ that it allows you to see your need of a savior By telling the truth about yourself. You're a sinner. And under the wrath of God. Then I have a choice to agree with God or to reject God. But that's a choice. There's a void in our heart, the scriptures tell us in Romans 8. Placed there purposely by God. You can try to fill it with anything you want. Pleasure, money, possessions, whatever. You fill in the blank. But sooner or later, that will come to an end. If you live long enough on earth, you know that whatever is a blast at first, by one day, it's no big deal. That void there is for Jesus Christ. He's the one that makes life come alive. It gives you meaning, places value on everything. But he has to give us a choice so that when we willfully reject, he is just in the judgment of us. Because he forces no one to go to heaven or to hell. If God forced you to go to heaven, he wouldn't be a loving God. He'd be a tyrant. If God forced you to go to hell, he would be unjust, unholy. So he must give you a choice. And he does that through the gospels we're going to see. Now all the evidence about man throughout history to the present day denies his proclamation that he's good. The massacres of dictators such as Hitler, Mussolini, Mao, Che, their murders, The number of wars we've had. World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Kuwait. All these things demonstrate the true nature of man. And it's all because someone wants a bigger piece of the pie. Simple. Sinful. The low morality, the ethics, the hatred against God is a greater charge against man for rejecting the love of God. The entire political correctness of our day, of being non judgmental, particularly when it comes to the belief in God, is a charge against man. Especially as Americans, because of our history, our documents, our founding fathers. Our monuments, our money, everything. Jeremiah 13:23 put it this way: Can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. It would be easier for a black man to turn his skin white than for him to turn to do good all the time. <laughs> It would be easier for a leopard to remove his spots than man to do good, as is habit. The heart of man is for desperately wicked. History condemns us. You've all heard it oftentimes. People say, you're talking about the Lord, and they say, well, I'm good. You're good? Have you ever lied? Yeah. Okay. Bible says you shouldn't lie. Have you ever um, stolen? Yeah. Okay. Bible says you shouldn't steal. Have you taken God's name in vain? Yeah, well, the Bible says not take God's name. And we can go on down the Ten Commandments. We can go down whatever we want. So according to the law, you deserve death. How can you be good then? You're contradicting what you're saying about yourself. You're evaluating yourself on a false standard. So you've got to agree with God that you're good or you're good for nothing. That's the choices. The day was prepared for the common salvation of man. No one's excluded. What incredible love. Now, the second truth, the day was prepared for the fulfillment of prophecy. This is the backbone. This is the foundation of the gospel. The day was known from the foundation of the world. Um, Revelation 13.8 says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb's slain from the foundation of the world. We're talking about the tribulation period. That they reject Jesus Christ and they embrace Antichrist. That's just before the Lord returns after the seven years of tribulation. God foreknew the fall. Therefore, he made provisions for the fall. Because God knows all things. He can't learn anything. Now that doesn't go well with man. And they have a difficult time understanding that. So if they can't understand and it's difficult for them, then it must be for God. So they bring God down to their own level. They make themselves God. And they just kind of explain God away. How interesting. But he's still on the throne... And he's not biting his nails. He's not intimidated. Man's question would be, if God knew about the fall, why did he not do something about it to avoid it? Well, simply because he must give you a free will so that you are judged righteously. Since he's holy, he can only judge you based on truth. And if he judges you for rejecting the gospel, then you must have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Therefore, the assumption is that before every person dies, they will hear the gospel. Whether it be from a preacher, or whether it be God directly ministering to them as they pick up a Bible, or whatever. Because if God judges one person for rejecting the gospel, never having heard the gospel, then God cannot be good, cannot be holy, he cannot be just, he has to be a liar. So his very nature concludes that if he sent his only son for the whole world, then the whole world must have at least one opportunity. And the greatest evidence of that is the two thieves on the cross. One accepted, one rejected. There's the picture of man's history. One accepts, one rejects. But both here. God would not have man's love apart from personal choice. Because love is only valuable If it's by choice. If you force your wife or your husband to love you, would that turn you on? You tell the minute I walk in at 5 o'clock and I open that door, you better tell me how much you love me or else. But God gives us complete liberty to embrace Him or to reject Him. Because love is valuable only when it's a choice. Now the day was declared to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. You're familiar with the prophecy. The seed of the woman is mentioned there. The seed of the woman refers to a time when a woman would bear a child without the aid of a man. The woman carries the egg, not the seed. The man provides the seed. And that seed of the woman, that child to be born of a virgin without the aid of a man, would be bruised by the seed of the serpent and the heel, a temporary wound at the cross. But the seed of the woman, the Messiah, would crush, literally, the head of the serpent. A fatal wound, crushing his authority. And Jesus did that at the cross. And it was affirmed and confirmed the resurrection. Adam and Eve understood the prophecy clearly that it was for the redemption of their fall. Their first son, Cain, means acquired. They named them that believing he might be the one. The next son, Seth, is named appointed. They thought he might be the one. So sinful man was always to be looking for the promise of that prophecy. The day was known... Through the prophets, Isaiah seven fourteen 14, says, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew confirms this as the birth of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel means God with us. Micah 5 2 speaks of the place of his birth. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Who's going forth is from of all, from everlasting. Literally, from the vanishing point. Because he's eternal. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 1, says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. Me, is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. Literally, thousands of prophecies. The day would be right on time. Paul the Apostle told the Galatians, Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the son made of a woman under the law, right on time.
0: Pastor Xavier Reese, reminding us of the important simple truths that prophesied of the coming king. And as you may have guessed, there's much more to come next time. But you can hear this program again for any part you may have missed simply by logging on to CalvaryChapelPasadena.com and clicking on the radio listings link. You can pick up a CD copy of this message as well. And the title you want to ask for is The Greatest Day. As usual, it's available on CD for only $4. And make sure you pass on this study to a friend in your church or Bible study when you're through.